What's up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Excellent. We'll go ahead and kick this thing off. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here in Zoomland with the one and only Green Chicken, aka Doomberg. For those who aren't familiar with Doomberg, Chicken Little has his own terminal, which is all about energy, finance, and the economy at large. Doomberg, thanks again for joining us today. How's life in Chicken Coopanomics? What's been you know, going on? First of all, Justin, thanks for having <laughs> us. And, uh, you know, it's as I was telling you before you hit record, it's it's edit day for us, which means it's rest day for me. And I always enjoy edit day because I can begin thinking about the next piece and knock off a podcast or two and you're on the schedule and here we are. So looking forward to a great discussion. Love, uh, you know, wicked energy. I and mean, what, what is <laughs> it's nothing more wicked than energy. So that's it. No, it's uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting take. And, you know, I'm sure people obviously have a ton of questions as to, you know, what is the green chicken? And, and we don't have to get into it because you have pumped out so much content. You've answered the question about a trillion times. So for those who are, you know, is there, is, is there a good episode or a piece or a, a podcast that explains the, the, the green chicken? Cause I think it's interesting if people aren't familiar, but I don't want to get into it too much and take up time. Yeah, no, there's a couple out there. I think um, we just did a podcast with Phil Bach, B-A-K, Okay. Um, where where we did a, a full 70 minute deep dive on the history of Doomberg and how we built this business and how mm -hmm. it became, you know, how to identify the work of your life. And then once you identify what it is that you were meant to be doing, what are the tactics and strategies you could use to ensure that you can keep doing it because you can achieve enough financial success that you um, that you can then, you know, spend your days focusing on what you get to do as opposed to what you have to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're just briefly, you know, the one minute summaries were a, a, a very small team of ex executives from the commodity sector. And um, we had previously built a consulting firm together. COVID sort of smashed that to smithereens. We had to reinvent ourselves. Um, we reinvented ourselves in the content creator space and specifically the subset of that space that serves Wall Street. Um, we discovered by helping our clients run their businesses better that we could probably create one of our own. And uh, with at the encouragement of our really our best client, we decided to do so two years ago. And the rest is um, kind of a surreal history. We've, mm -hmm. um, we've blown up um, far beyond our wildest imaginations when we started. And and the, the last thing I would say is, you know, the single most important thing beyond sort of pursuing your passion and and really sort of pouring it all out there is is um, an authentic mindset of continuous improvement. Every day we wake up, show up and make the number go up. That's one of our many phrases around the chicken coop. And yeah. um, we have no hesitation to ask pointed questions about why some things didn't work and others did. Um, hey, that piece didn't land. Why? Like, what mm -hmm. was it the wrong topic? Was the cut to paid at the wrong spot? Could the editing have been tighter? Was the intro too long? You know, did we annoy our ideal clients? Um, we ask every single day. We measure 45 data points around our business. And we, to quote Jim Harbaugh, approached the, the Dumberg project with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. And um, <laughs> and you can only really do that if it, if it is your passion. This is of what... Course we were meant to be doing. And if you find what you were meant to be doing in life, my strongest advice is keep doing it. Right. Yeah. Do what you love and it'll never feel like work. It sounds so cliche, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm about 80% there. And so I, I applaud you and, and the rest of the team. Again, you guys have completely blown up. I mean, just, um, and, and again, for those listening or, or watching, I encourage you to, uh, to check them out. I've got all the links in the show notes. And so, um, you know, whether it be Twitter, obviously the, you know, your Substack is, is, is by and large your, your, your biggest source of information. Um, and you know, just before we get into the energy topics, you think Doomberg, there's, there is a lot of, I would say good information out there, but from your observation and your team's observation, like, is, is there, is there too much information out there now that people have to sift through the, the, the bullshit for a lack of better terms. Like, I mean, because, you know, people, you see people pumping out content, you got newsletters, you got this, you got different published, you know, this and that. Um, but like, do you find a point where you just see all this stuff kind of uh, in the background and, and you, and it kind of makes you laugh and think, wow, we're, th this is easy because, you know, we're, we're credible. We're giving out facts. We've got science. Um, I mean, talk a little bit about that, because I just think the information age right now is just like it's almost information overload sometimes. 
So that's a very interesting question. I have a slightly different take on it. So first of all, the barrier to entry in the space is zero. Right. Uh, but the barrier to success has never been higher because the barrier to entry has been, you know, decimated by the the uh, advent of technologies that make it possible for anyone in the world to communicate to a large audience if they produce, you know, uh, substantive quality. And the, the analogy would be, you know, like this, all this brouhaha about AI and, you know, what does it mean for, you know, white collar workers and all of this stuff. And in, in our view, it, it, you know, the proliferation of information is just a tool for high performing people. And you could either embrace it, make the most of it and, and create something amazing out of it. Or you could, um, you know, uh, ignore it, walk away from it, bemoan it. Um, ultimately, the mindset with which you approach technical innovation determines how technical innovation will, will approach you. Um, you know, but there's mm -hmm. all kinds of, um, you know, there's some fascinating people in the content creator space, you know, um, Beth David, I forget what his, his name is, uh, Valuetainment. Um, yeah, and, and this guy has this great video, like how to seduce money. And it's corny <laughs> and it's hysterical and it's funny and it's cheesy and it's got, you know, millions and millions of views. And you know what, he's right. Like if you approach the proliferation of information with an attitude that is like, ah, there's so much noise, there's so much noise, there's so much noise. Well, guess what? You're going to miss a signal. Right. Whereas if you approach it with, there's amazing free signal out there. And in our case, we're going to go find it, curate it, and shape it into a great narrative for our readers who don't have the time to do so because they're not doing this full time like we are. And they have day jobs and they want to find a reliable, trusted source to curate complexity for them then the proliferation of information is a godsend for us. This is the ultimate infinite pile of hay dirt that would pile into the front of our sluice box. And every week we go and roll out the mats and see how much gold is in there. Like, <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, like there are now on the flip side as well, there are lore, you know, hordes of people who produce amazing content and can't market themselves. Right. And so they're, they have woefully small audiences and they get frustrated and this gets to the other side of the coin which i think is a key part of the doomwork success like there's a whole thought out there that your information your intelligence your strategic insights your content is great enough to stand on its own and people should just go find it and to mm. some to many they think it's uncouth or unbecoming to market themselves you know with a strategy and with some effect right. um and we have written um that you know all this does is condemn you know your work to the crowded bin of great writing never read um and so you need both you need to embrace the fire hose of information jump into the pool and look for the signal and then once you have it you should unabashedly market your ability to do that because people will pay for it it's a valuable service you know and, and we've priced our product fairly and we've gotten an amazing response and mm -hmm. um last point i would say is you know as a content creator the vast majority of people will never pay you um, and that's fine. They aren't uh, your ideal clients. And so you shouldn't listen to them on pricing strategy, for example. <laughs> right. Good point. You, you listen to what your ideal clients are telling you. Um, so if you're running an advertiser model, like if you're running an advertiser model directed at the automotive industry, who cares what the shampoo company down the street thinks about your products? GM calls and has a complaint. You pick up the phone and you listen, right? And so um, the last sort of point here is we, we spend a lot of time thinking about our ideal clients and how do we delight them? And every business, every business, B2B, B2C, doesn't matter, um, lives and dies by the following four objectives. Um, who are our ideal clients? Where can we find them? Um, how do we entice them? And then how do we delight them? And if you focus like a zealot on those four things, uh, which you can't do, by the way, if you don't sit down and actually write a character sketch for who your ideal clients are, Right. Um, then you're just sort of random dumb luck at, at some point. But you know, who are they? Where do you find them? How do you entice them? How do you delight them? We we live, eat, breathe, sleep, dream our ideal clients. When our highest paying subscribers, our pro tier, send us an email, they get an immediate response. When our paying subscribers send us an email, they get a very quick response as well. When people who aren't paying us but see the free previews write us to complain, we delete the email because right. they're not our ideal clients. And so um, these are the sort of the mindsets that we described in this Philbach podcast. And I think they're universally applicable, but certainly directly applicable to the content space. Right. No, that's, I mean, if, if, if for the rest of the duration of this episode, 
what you just mentioned is is a big enough nugget to to just stop now, which again is 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 so interesting, especially from someone like myself. I've been in sales and business development. And then, you know, I've played in the marketing space and now with the podcast, it's, I ask those questions all the time and it, they're not easy questions to answer. Um, and so I'm curious before we move on to energy stuff, has your ideal client changed from what it originally was anticipated, what it originally was anticipated versus what it is now? Like, have you had to sort of shift your sort of thinking around that or? No, because we spent so much time up front doing market research, as you know, with, with experience uh, in the space, uh, we, yeah. because we were consultants in the content creator space. We had made a name for ourselves. And before we launched Doomberg, we had actually done um, varying degrees of deep dives with probably 40 content creators in the finance world ah. and got, got to see for some of them a lot of their data uh, and help them for free and, you know, volunteered our time. One of our expressions is giving has an NPV of infinity. So, wow. um, you know, we were more than happy to engage. We've probably tried to help 20 or 30 professional writers or content creators since we launched Doomberg and people have reached out to us. Uh, we always agree to do those things for two reasons. One, it's just great goodwill, yeah. surf the sea of abundance, you know? Um, yes. And and um, two, we always learn something that makes our business better. And you never know when you're gonna learn something really important um, that radically improves your business. And so, you know, um, it, it's always good to give and, and to surf the sea of abundance. But to your question, um, our ideal client, the character sketches we wrote uh, for them um, they haven't really changed and there's enough of them in the world that we could create way more than enough revenue. And as we wrote in a piece, you know, one of our work of our life pieces, um, you know, once you have more than enough, the relentless pursuit of more is actually a disease. And, yeah. um, and we have more than enough. We have more than our wildest dreams. And so at what point would we be satisfied uh, if not uh, well beyond the point that we never imagined we could, uh, we could ever achieve. And so we are satisfied. We're not changing our ideal client. Um, we're going to just keep doing what we're doing. Again, when you find out what you're doing in life, just keep doing it. And so this isn't work. I can't wait to write the next piece. Yeah. Our editor loves edit day, which is today. And um, we we have a rule that we don't publish a piece unless we think this is the best piece we've ever written. Yeah. And as long as we keep that feeling and as long as it is still a get to, you know, if you actually take a look and assess your calendar and divide the time that you spend into those two categories. I get to do that versus I have to do this. If all people listening to this podcast take from this discussion is measure that number and make the get to have to ratio higher, um, then yes. this podcast will be valuable for them. And in fact, um, we proactively outsource all the have tos um, and try to design a life where all we have to do is the get tos. And uh, when you do that, magic happens because again, like, and this is our philosophy, you know, like we're redesigning our approach here after a year, um, some improvements and some frustrations with how Substack allows us to curate to that tier. And they're helping us in that regard. Um, and as we're redesigning that product, you know, um, the editor and I were just um, having lunch and, and then we're like, um, well, let's start with the way in which you would like to serve that tier that is really, really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like don't start with what you think they might want start with what you know is to be really fun and then it'll be authentic it'll be contagious and you'll produce great quality and that'll be that and it's like yeah of course and we always need to remind ourselves of, of this, these ethos that we have um created by while we built this project out but the have to get to ratio or get to have to ratio um you know, optimizing that uh, driving that number higher it, it it is just such a superior way to live and and having achieved mind-blowing life-changing humbling success um, the last thing we'd want to do is squander it by trying to get more. Um, mm -hmm. Our intent is to savor it. Like I get up each day looking forward to the things I get to do. Yeah. You know, we had our Doom Zoom Pro um, webinar today, and then I have this podcast with you, and then I'm going to go home and I'm going to start researching the next piece. And maybe I'm going to shoot a little pool and hang out with my kids and enjoy the, the nice uh, late spring weather like I get to do today. Yeah, and, I, you know, and I'm, I'm going to make the most out of today. And, uh, you know, when I wake up tomorrow... I'm going to try to figure out how to get the most out of tomorrow. And, and it really is a, you know, in this era of um, rat race, constant online, um, keeping up with the Joneses, consumerism culture, um, you know, we, I, I, I personally spent two decades um, climbing the corporate ladder. And if you looked at my resume, you would say, wow, what a, an amazing career you had. I couldn't have been more miserable. Mm. And I was missing out on my kids. And I, uh, you know, I, I would travel for weeks at a time and just assume the bases are covered at home. And all yes. that was a big giant lie. I was living a big giant lie. 
and um, and I stepped off the train. You know, the train kept going. I lost a lot of friends. Um, the train kept going down the tracks. You know, when you when you are in the professional world and you're an executive or you have peers and you know, uh, it's a whole different world. You're in the rat race. You're in it together. You're in the foxhole with people, and you do have some enduring friendships. But by and large, a lot of that is fake. And it's only when you sort of make a true step change and you invest in yourself, you find out who your friends really are. Last point is um, uh, if you think you have 100 friends and then you make a major change in your life and only five remain, um, you haven't lost 95 friends. You've identified your true five. And so um, you know that that's a really important thing. Yeah, no, that I mean, <laughs> that's fascinating you say that. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with a gentleman, Arjun Murthy. Um, he's, uh, he's someone I've had on the podcast and someone I, who I think very highly of. Um, he spoke a lot of to the same notion in terms of, you know, the the grind. And he said he was at his kid's baseball game and he'd be on his computer and it was like, he brought his office everywhere. And he's, he's, you know, over time now he's, 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 I would argue that he's in that sort of same position as he gets to do so much more now versus what he has to do. And he said one of the first times he went to his kid's baseball game and didn't have his computer on his lap. It was the first time he actually watched the game uh for the first you know from the entire the entirety not just when his kid was up to bat um but i, I would ask you i'm, I'm curious do you i mean do you think it's necessary to go through the rat race to finally realize what truly matters and what truly makes a person happy because for myself i haven't done you know I'm, I'm still somewhat in the corporate world but i've been very fortunate in in the sense where i get to do a lot of what i like to do instead of what I have to do. And, and I'm flexible to where I get with my, you know, I get to do stuff with my kids, blah, blah, blah. But I, but I say that to say, if, if I didn't, you know, work drilling rigs and moved away to a different country and spent months away from, you know, my wife, I don't know if I'd be here per se. So like, what, what are your thoughts? Like, do you have to go through the dirt to get through up on top to, to be able to get into this type of position? Or do you think it's just something that is just sort of a, a common denominator amongst a lot of the people like yourself? Great question. Um, and this is the, the fundamental existential question that I grapple with as I try to raise my teenage children into responsible young adults, right? Um, yeah, I, I had a pretty, you know, a rough upbringing and, and moved out early and immigrated to the US for grad school and, you know, um, showed up with, you know, de minimis resources and nothing but ambition. And, and, and in my early days, I thought like the, the path to success was to get a good job and climb the corporate ladder. And I did that. And, but then you get there and you realize, um, well, you know, it's not quite, they, 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 you're still spinning the wheel. The wheel always spins. Right. And so there's a very great question. Like there's no way, for example, that Doomberg could exist without the two decades of commodity expertise that we have. And um, yeah. my prior employers trained me extraordinarily well. I moved all over the world. I led very large teams worked in renewable energy, worked in science, worked, you know, brought uh, amazing technologies, billion dollar projects to the market. Um, if absent all of those experiences, the unique aspect of, of Doomberg certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be there. It's an open question as to whether if I had, you know, had the, you know, the, uh, the chutzpah to, to try that as a 20 year old, mm -hmm. where, where things could have gone, you know, so the, the, the counter to, Yes, I learned a lot over 20 years is I spent 20 years you know, in the grind. And yeah. um, and you know, one of my sort of regrets, perhaps, or if I could do it over again, is I would have widened the risk aperture much earlier yes. uh, than I ultimately did because I was so paranoid about being poor as an adult as I was as a child mm. that I felt like I was risk minimizing to the extreme. Right. Now, um, my children, of course, aren't replicating my upbringing, and that is the perennial challenge of sort of uh, nouveau, well-off people: is how do you sort of instill upon your children a work ethic and and a motor that uh, I had by necessity that for them would be a choice, mm. uh, without putting them through the same swimming through the mud that you know I went through, you know, as a child, and so. My hope is that um, there is such a path to that because I'm not ever going to be in a position where I'd want to put my kids in the mud. You know, I'm just a sucker. I'm a softy. Um, <laughs> and and so, you know, I, when they call, I will respond and they know that. And they're they, at the least they know that they're like deeply loved. But it, it is a challenge. It's the perennial challenge of relatively successful parents is how do you sort of embed in your children the motor that it takes to be successful? Because ultimately, 
if you had me select between motor and sort of IQ, um, I would bet on motor every time. I mean, it's nice to have yeah. both, of course, but the you know the the parameter which explains most of the variance in life is motor, mm-hmm. not IQ. And uh, my motor was born out of desperation, and my kids are just simply not going to have that experience. And so, um, hopefully, there's a way to induce the motor without that. Yeah, no, it's again, I, I have young kids, seven and four, and and the one thing my wife and I talk about is it's like. If, you know, they'll never be hungry if we spoon feed them their, their entire life. It's like, how do we, I don't know, necessarily say manufacture adversity, but put them in positions to lose, <laughs> to fail and to have that sense of, you know, desire to just get out and, and again, have somewhat be face that adversity to be able to overcome, gain confidence, the self-esteem. Um, but to your point, it's like, I always say everything for me is upside. Cause it's hard to be, it's hard to complain or, or be down on myself when I came from cleaning toilets on a drilling rig, you know what I mean? But my son will likely never have to clean toilets on a drilling rig. So it's like, what is he going to have? You know, it's like, where do we go? And I know we've kind of gone off on a tangent here on some topics, but th- this is near and dear to my heart is these types of conversations in as much as energy. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, again, for the audience, appreciate you hanging in there. And, and Doomer, I really appreciate the sort of the, the thought behind of the, the the answers that you've been giving. Um, let's take a pivot uh, and, and dive into energy. And I, I'm curious from your perspective, obviously, you've been in the industry for a long time, have followed commodity markets and energy for a long time. But do you have any core beliefs around energy that you've changed your mind on over the last few years as we move into this sort of new era of massive technology deployment, AI, energy transition, the Paris Accord. Does any has anything sort of fundamentally sort of shifted or core relief shifted for you? I would say there might be some minor changes in emphasis at the margin, but the fundamental belief that energy is life and that society is dictated by how much you know net energy we can harness and then the manner in which we distribute that energy um you know with some equitable mindset um to all living humans um is unchanged we are fundamentally a pro-human uh shop we believe that energy is life that your standard of living is literally defined by how much energy you personally get to waste Mm. it sounds funny to people who don't really understand what we mean when we say that but it is true Um, You know, entropy is spontaneous and the human endeavor is a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. The right angles I'm looking at behind you won't spontaneously appear in nature. You have to uh, (laughs) impose that order on your local environment and the amount of order you can impose in your local environment defines your standard of living. And who are we to limit the billions of other humans on the planet to less energy than us and a lower standard of living than us? Um, You know, I do believe that the human spirit... um, uh, the planet can support many, many, many more billions of people than we have today. Um, and the technologies do exist. And it is just really a lack of basic understanding of science that is uh, pushing our current slate of politicians to make drastically silly choices, which, of course, is the market inefficiency that Doomberg exploits. And so, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, but no, I, I do think that our core belief that uh, which is based on physics and so it can't change is the second law of thermodynamics and the arrow of time dictate that, um, you know, um, all humans everywhere want a higher standard of living, which means all humans everywhere will always want more energy. And um, the the cleanest carbon-free way we can provide it is what we should be pursuing. And all roads lead to nuclear. And so when we started Doomberg, that was our core belief. And as we have written nearly 200 articles and researched and learned and met experts and consulted experts and um, received feedback along the way, a few things have changed at the margin. For example, we're far less enthusiastic about fusion than we probably were at the beginning because fission solves all the problems anyway, and fusion is just mm. a distraction. That's an example of a modification of our belief. But at its core, um, no, we are still uh, pro-human. Uh, energy is life, um, you know, and this is the mantra that we, uh, the, you know, the, the the brand that we have staked out. Right. So, well, two questions. The first one: Do you think that? I mean, do you think that the whole the ESG initiatives and a lot of the the goals set therein, um, do you think that's somewhat of a distraction to reach the North Star of providing, you know, you know, affordable, abundant, reliable energy, you know, on a macro basis? Like, has that sort of put us behind? Do you think it's like where where do you kind of stand on, on that in terms of like actual progress? towards providing 
enough and more energy and especially to places in emerging economies? So there's two answers to that question. There's the answer that addresses the core anti-human Malthusian origins of much of the radical environmental movement. And then there's the answer that addresses everybody else who has become concerned, i.e. victims of propaganda, mm. um, and genuinely wants to provide for as many humans as they can in a way that minimizes the impact on the planet. And so to the rotten core of anti-human Malthusians, um, the expressed intent is less humans. And frankly, less humans that look like them. Um, let's be honest. Um, sure. uh, so, and we wrote a piece uh, many months ago called Malthusian Malarkey, where we show the ugly history of of some of the the modern day heroes of the environmental movement. When you actually go back and listen to what they said and read what they wrote, you know, semantic shifts aside, it would be considered repulsive and racist. Um, there's a book that we quoted in a piece, literally titled "Too Many Asians," hmm. and it bemoans the population explosion that they uh, foresaw in Southeast Asia. And uh, the underlying message is, if we don't stop this population from exploding, they're going to hoard the resources that we would otherwise enjoy. And so um, the anti-human Malthusian origins of the modern environmental movement is undeniable. It still persists. Many of the key leaders are actually anti-human and they have dressed um, this um, anti-human objective in language that is sort of um, standard propaganda. Um, but you could just go to the EU last week. They had a, literally a degrowth conference mm. where they are um, talking about how humans just need to accept a lot less growth. Um, let's be very clear what they're saying, which is like you and I and your children and my children um, should make do with less. And they, of course, will not be making do with any less at all. Um, <laughs> right. And so, um, but to the second camp, the people who have been um, victims of this propaganda, but also there is genuine pollution slash sustainability questions that we should be pondering um, right. um, with some intelligence. Um, we would propose that this is the following equation that we should optimize. The ratio of the total standard of living we can provide as many humans as possible divided by our impact on the planet. And if you focus only on the impact, then you necessarily end up with far fewer humans. Whereas if you ignore the impact, you necessarily end up with far greater damage to the planet. There is a needle to be thread here, which is as long as our North Star is that ratio, energy technologies that have huge impacts will be minimized. Energy technologies that have substantial um, life nourishing uh, potential will be uh, prioritized. And that is a ratio that leads to the following saying, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So once we understand that there is no utopian solution, there is no green Santa Claus, that necessarily, if There's we're going chicken. to, there is a green chicken, um, <laughs> but it, it necessarily immediately, it, it crystallizes the debate to the important question. But we are going to make some trade-offs. What are those? Let's identify them. Let's be honest about them. Let's be authentic with the, with the public. Here is the standard of living you have to give up for the marginal impact we have, we, we think we might abate. Um, nobody wants to run on what the actual policies of end fossil fuels means, which means billions of dead people mm -hmm. and, and billions more poor people. Um, and we know we don't have to, because literally if fission was invented today, it would be hailed as a civilization saving uh, invention. Um, and we would be implementing it post haste. And in fact, the proof of the anti-human Malthusian origins of the radical environmental movement is their steadfast, any logical opposition to nuclear power. Um, anybody who thinks nuclear waste, for example, is a serious issue is either a victim of propaganda or a knowing purveyor of it. And so mm -hmm. this is our passion. This is what makes it easy for us to write piece after piece after piece on the topic. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and we're going to keep doing it. And and you know um, we've had success in part, we believe, because this is a actually Doomberg's you know uh, name aside, a, a message of optimism, a bet on the human spirit, and a message of hope. Mm. No, so nuclear again, it it always raises such an interesting question, and I think a lot of folks again are just uneducated or they're being influenced by the wrong message, but. I mean, do you are you optimistic on nuclear being part of the of of the energy mix at a greater degree than it is now? Let's let's just talk domestically. Sure. Um, 
you know, and, and, and with that, what's your take on a lot of these SMR, these small modular sure. reactors? Cause that seems to be something that you, you, it gets like a little bit of spark, but I have not seen it really be deployed at any decent scale. Yeah. We wrote a piece recently called gaining steam, um, where we oh, highlight, yeah, where that. we, where we highlighted that, um, a major petrochemical company is deploying an SMR uh, at their integrated site. Um, why does that matter? You know, for all the attention on electric vehicles, for example, um, and the trillions of dollars being wasted um, pursuing that canard. Um, the total carbon emissions of automotive and aviation is less than the carbon emissions from the creation of industrial grade steam. And SMR technology, advanced nuclear reactors in general, but SMR in particular, because you can make them small enough to embed them on integrated um, petrochemical sites, for example, mm -hmm. um, they can operate at a much higher temperature than the sort of standard old uh, reactor designs, Gen 1, Gen 2. And so the Gen 4 SMRs can give you anywhere between 500 to 1000 degrees C steam, which actually covers a lot of the base of the pyramid of uh, how much natural gas and coal and some cases oil that we're burning to create such steam. You know, most people don't realize just how uh, carbon intense industrial steam uh, requirements are. And um, Dow, um, previously known as Dow Chemical and X Energy are collaborating on the deployment of um, uh, 80 megawatt modules. I think they're going to do four of them in their sea drift site on the Gulf Coast in Texas. Um, and their plan, working with the DOE, is to have this up and running by 2030. That is a transformational project if it works. Um, SMRs and the fourth generation reactor designs generally are uh, inherently safe. You know, walk away, shut down. Um, um, literally, physically impossible to um, to have a meltdown. It's just based on the, the fuel design and the reactor design. And um, and ultimately, if we're truly serious about abating carbon. Objectives like this are what matter way more than, you know, installing solar panels or wind turbines, and yeah. um, and any opposition to this is just insane. Um, it is, yeah. You know, I would, um, if somebody was to develop uh, a, a micro nuclear reactor based on Gen four, Gen five type designs, and put it in my neighborhood, I would live there. Um, I would live there because a, I know that I'm going to be totally safe. And B, I'm going to have the world's cheapest supply of energy. And C, energy is life, and I like life. Um, right. And so, uh, in the U.S. in particular, there's a chance. Um, you know, we just did our Doomberg Pro this morning, and we the last third of it was what we call the nuclear renaissance. And you know, putting Germany aside, the rest of the world is really re-embracing physics and coming back to nuclear as the answer. You know, up in Canada, our good friends, Dr. Chris Kiefer at the you know Canadians for Nuclear Energy, literally got as a citizen advocate, a doctor, a medical doctor started a nonprofit to save, you know, Canada's can-do reactor technology and to promote it and managed to talk his way into getting a meeting with Justin Trudeau himself. And Justin Trudeau has done a complete 180 on the topic, which is proof that, you know, well-intended citizens with a pro-human agenda who are looking for ways to decouple hum humanity's ecological impact while still providing a great standard of living for everybody can make an impact. Same with the U.S. with, um, you know, saving Diablo Canyon and and the development of SMRs, look at Japan, you know, total re-embracement of nuclear power. Um, the rest of Europe, outside of Germany, Germany is ever more isolated. Um, the United Arab Emirates is just bringing on another reactor. Their entire, I mean, they've done an amazing job bringing, uh, on a journey to bring on four world-scale large reactors and to provide their citizens with decades and decades of carbon-free, cheap, plentiful energy. And this is a country that is, you know, substantially an oil and gas producer thinking so far ahead. Uh, for their own citizens um the answer is there if it were invented mm. today we would all celebrate it it is possible and last point the malthusian anti-human environmental radicals will tell you nuclear is um too expensive and takes too long they have spent the last 40 years making sure that regulators throw up every barrier to entry as possible with which necessarily radically increases the cost and the time and so the cost and time of the nuclear renaissance are political choices. They're not financial ones, and they're not certainly not technical ones. Uh, we are so many nines down the down the path of safety and effectiveness that it's absurd. 
And the moment we feel enough pain through our ESG choices that we will be demanding a solution, um, nuclear will be there and we'll be ready. So you bring up a great point. So do you think the initiatives that have been put in place globally, a lot of it driven by Europe on sort of the ESG climate catastrophe front, do you think a lot of people are feeling the pain to which then they are considering other options, i.e. nuclear? Like, do you, do you think the pendulum is kind of swinging or wow. is it still? It's worse than that, Justin. The the scores of millions of people in the developing world have experienced the pain and they're not switching to nuclear. They're switching back to coal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Look at yeah. look, let's look at Pakistan. It's a quarter billion people. Yeah. Pakistan had a perfectly fine electricity grid. That was powered by liquefied natural gas. When Germany scored its own goal, it scoured the world looking for every BTU of energy it could get its hands on, regardless of cost, carbon footprint, or impact on the developing world. And that's why we saw liquefied natural gas bid up to $100 per million BTU, which shut Pakistan out of the market, mm -hmm. killed their grid, blackouts, political upheaval, all the things that come when you don't have energy. Guess what they're doing? Screw you, Germany. Screw you, European Union. Screw yep. our carbon commitments. We're going back to coal. We're going to have giant piles of coal that we know will be there, that we can mine ourselves, and um, carbon emissions be damned. You know, the, the path function matters. And this <laughs> yeah. is what we were saying to our friends in the environmental left. Like, you're pushing too far, too fast, and the recoil, the regression to the mean will overshoot. Yep. And so Indonesia, Pakistan, China, you name it. India, they're all going back to coal. Coal had a record year in 2022, and it will set another record in 2023. What have we accomplished? All we've right. accomplished is we've demonstrated the Western hypocrisy, the G7 hypocrisy, to the 4 billion people that are in the club. And guess what they're going to do? If we stopped using fossil fuels today in the West and sacrificed our own cultures and our own societies, all we would do is make those fossil fuels cheaper for them to use and they will use it. That's what's coming. And so um, watch what we do, not what we say. Germany right. retreated to the coal mines with the speed and efficiency of the evacuation of Dunkirk at the moment that they saw that their grid was in jeopardy in late 2022. They brought back mothball plants. They bought coal all over the world. They bought liquefied natural gas. They burned as many fossil fuels as they needed to to get through the, uh, the doldrums of, of the German winter. Pakistan, India, China, Indonesia, Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, they all watch this. They're not dumb. They, they have their own fiduciaries to their own populations. And guess what? They're going to serve them. And so, to your question, you know, it, nuclear exists. Nuclear is the answer. Opposition to it is fundamentally anti-human, and it's time we put it aside. So let's assume hypothetically that Everyone says, you know what? Nuclear is the answer. What have we been thinking? Let's go. Is there enough in like, where would the investment come from? I guess, obviously, if, if government got into it, but like where to, to, to actually move the needle and create enough nuclear power, where would the investment come from? And are, is there money to be made in the private markets for something like this? So great question. This is a 50 year old problem that we solved 50 years ago. And in the can do in the can do report that Chris Kiefer's team put out, they show how every year for 20 years, a new world scale reactor came online in Canada. Um, why? It was systematized. It was supported by the government. It was uh, the red tables cut. So when you say cost of the financials, vast majority of the finances is being wasted on unnecessary regulatory, um, you know, uh, 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 inspections and and you know right. um, you know ten more nines of safety when nine nines will do um, you know the 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 burden of the regulatory infrastructure which was artificially created by radical Malthusian anti-human extremists um, that burden can be whipped away tomorrow wiped away tomorrow with 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 the right political agenda so if Canada for twenty consecutive years could bring on a gigawatt of nuclear power using standard modular designs. Um, and then have those plants operate for decades and decades and decades. Look, I mean, the Ontario electricity grid is the least carbon intense grid in the Western world, in the world, really. I mean, outside of Norway, which has a huge amount of hydro, Ontario also has a lot of hydro it gets from Quebec and also internally. But yeah. 
but there's no coal being burned in Ontario. There's very little natural gas. There's some solar and wind. The vast majority of their electricity comes from nuclear first and hydro second. I drove through Ontario recently. The pavement was pretty good. The restaurants were clean. The people were nice. The economy looked good. There were um, green fish in the creeks. Like it was a totally perfectly normal civilized um, province and yeah. they've solved it. Right. And so the answer is there, France gets 70, 80% of its electricity from nuclear power. And even though it's bundled its own sort of maintenance of, of, of those reactors, it, it, this was all done 50 years ago. If our, if, if, if our, you know, uh, the, the ancestors, I guess, for lack of a better word, but uh, you know, our, our, our grandparents could do it. Surely we could do it now with all we know and all the improvements we've made. And, Again, the cost and timeline is artificially inflated by people who are opposed to humans and want a lot less of them. Uh, we want to call that out and we want to point out the alternatives uh, that exist. And uh, for sure, like, look, I mean, the Manhattan Project, I mean, again, all a matter of uh, motivation, right? If the U.S. government said we're going to go with this one design and we're going to build 10 of them a year, uh, we would it would be done now to your question about investments you know we don't give investment advice i think uranium has probably got long-term secular bull um tailwinds to it but um timing such markets and making money off them directly is not what we do right no that makes sense uh so something that's a little bit more i guess in front of us or on a shorter time frame and something that we have access to is, is natural gas um i'm curious so kind of zooming in uh, into, you know, obviously we've got, you know, right now we're exporting a ton of LNG. Um, we're sitting on uber amounts of natural gas here in the U S which, you know, like we'd mentioned in previous conversations, it's funny because California and I think new England are actually, you know, having to, <laughs> they're having a tough time, uh, accessing or even using natural gas. But, um, I was reading recently uh, about the expectations on the increase in Permian, natural gas export via pipeline to Mexico, say over the next eight to 10 years, I think there's an additional three BCF per day of pipeline demand by 2030. That all said, could that impact the availability of Permian natural gas for LNG export and raise the concern about the sufficiency of natural gas supply to support US LNG export growth? Because we've got quite a bit coming down the pipeline over the next five years in terms of what we're committed to exporting. Yeah, so we wrote a piece in uh, mid-April called Guilt by Association, where we talked about the associated natural gas coming out of the Permian and what it means. And here's a really amazing stat. Um, if you sort of add up what we're flaring and what we're exporting via LNG, roughly speaking, that could replace the entirety of our coal burning wow, uh, wow. in the U.S., just sort of back of the envelope math. Um, and so we're we're burning something like 440 million tons of coal this year. And on a BTU basis, if we didn't export that natural gas, but instead we had sane policies to um, domestically take take advantage of this amazing bounty that we have, um, we could be so clean, so much cleaner. In fact, the U.S. has radically reduced its carbon footprint, uh, which is a story you don't hear very often. And the primary way in which it has done so is by displacing coal with natural gas. Um, and even today, natural gas in Europe and Asia is, you know, $10 a million BTU and two bucks here. We have a five to one spread, right? Um, we have this amazing abundance. But because California and New England haven't built the pipelines, um, we had in December SoCal trading at $55 a million BTU and Waha up in the Permian Basin at negative. They couldn't give it away because okay. it was constraining the production of oil and gas, of oil. Um, and the gas, you know, pipelines are being built and it will be exported, but the pipeline should be built to California, New England, not to the Gulf Coast, to these LNG export facilities, mm. um, but they're not. And so um, we have now look, those prices have since come down on SoCal and, you know, but those extreme types of volatility environments um, reflect the um, the uh, inelastic nature of demand for these products. And and the next time we have a cold snap or, or power outage or you name it, we're going to have these types of price spikes again. And um, it is true that associated natural gas is constipating the production of oil out of the Permian Basin, which is why the U.S. is still, you know, uh, 12, 12.3 million barrels a day production down from 13.1, let's say, pre-COVID. Um, and so there, there has to be sort of a solution to this if we're going to keep oil prices down. Um, but it is a fascinating market. The natural gas market is obviously it's a... Uh, 
it's not a great market to trade because the swings are so wild. It's sort of a you know a career killer if you get it wrong. But you know you literally in the same calendar year, you had the exact same molecule of methane trading for a hundred dollars per million BTU in Western Europe at the Dutch TTF contract and negative in the Permian Basin. It's just insane. Right. Um, and it just goes to show you how valuable the molecule is and how difficult it is to ship it, which is how these these pronounced regional arbitrage opportunities open themselves up. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it it is. And, you know, again, we're so fortunate to be sitting on the reserves that we do have here in the U.S. And and so um, I'm optimistic. You know, I'm, I'm glad I live here in Texas. I'll just say that uh, when when it comes to. I want to kind of switch gears and talk uh, with regards to commodity prices and energy markets. Um, we've got, you know, right now we're on the verge of, you know, reaching our debt limit or breaching the debt ceiling. Um, again, for those I'm sure who are well familiar, you know, the treasury is basically running out of borrowing power. And so what's your sort of crystal ball think in terms of which direction they'll go and, and how do you suspect that may impact oil and gas prices? I mean, all of, a lot of it will come back to demand, but do you think this is this is this just noise, or do you think this is like a big deal to where it's going to kind of implode markets and it's going to be a catastrophe? I think it's a giant nothing burger. I couldn't be more sick and tired of hearing about it. Um, first of yeah. all, this is the kind of theater that happens all the time. But here's the most obvious reason why it's a giant nothing burger. We've somehow allowed Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and mainstream media to characterize the, the conversation around the potential for the U.S. to default as though the very first thing we would do um, when we can't borrow money is not pay the interest or principal uh, on the debt that's coming due while keeping the entire government fully funded. Right? We have a giant bloat of waste and money going out the door every day to um, millions of people who are never at risk of losing their jobs and have amazing benefits and so on. Um, and um, we can prioritize our payments. We're not going to default. Like the US government is not going to default. So right. calling this a, um, a potential default situation is totally misleading and it's propaganda. Mm. Like when push comes to shove, the U.S. government is not going to default on its treasury obligations. It may not pay its government wages, and that may suck for people who work at the government. And mm -hmm. maybe the parks are going to be closed, and um, maybe some military members don't get paid, or some ammunitions don't get built, or some post office workers don't get their paycheck. All of those things are well behind the line as far as like interest payments on, on treasury coupons and paying off debt as it comes due. And so um, to me, not only is this going to get solved, uh, even if it doesn't get solved, we're so far away from default and the political pain and uproar that would come as we see a government shutdown. There's a distinction between a government shutdown and defaulting on the debt and why we've allowed the conversation right. to, um, to focus on the default part and not the shutdown part befuddles me. So I think it's a giant nothing. It's certainly a giant nothing as it pertains to uh, energy prices. Uh, I can't imagine a world where the U.S. defaults on its debt obligations. It's kind of a Pascal's wager situation. I'm not going to bet against the existence of God. What's the upside? <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, something that is going to happen, uh, Doomberg, is next year's election. So, where, what, you know, if if one, where do you see energy prices going after next year's uh, battle of the two? I mean, do you, I mean. It, Historically, when one administration is in office, everyone, a lot of folks on the oil and gas side are boo-boo, but then all of a sudden, you know, that we produce and oil prices go up and everyone's happy on that front. But do, do you think it's, there's going to be a, a major change in trajectory um, if either one, either one gets back in or another one takes over? As a general rule, we view democratic administrations as bullish for the price of energy. Right, because they are anti-energy and humans want it. And <laughs> yeah. so um, if you are worried about the price of energy as an investor, then you should want a democratic administration. Sure. And if you're worried about the supply of energy as a consumer, then you should want a more conservative administration, a more pro-energy administration. 
Uh, we are politically agnostic. We don't write about politics only to the extent yeah. that political observations impact the things we're writing about. Um, right. We we try hard. You know, one of our rules, for example, is we if we would never write about it, we don't tweet about it, which is why we've avoided so many of the traps on Twitter and the sort of cancel culture and all that stuff, because we're just, hey, the Supreme, Supreme Court had a ruling on abortion. We're never writing about that. So we're not going to tweet about it. Like Doomberg yeah. is not an outlet for my personal opinion. Doomberg right. is the outlet for the things we're going to write about. Um, so we would never really write about politics for politics sake, but we would write about politics through the lens of what does this mean for the energy markets. And Joe Biden is a boon for the oil and gas producers, even though they might pretend like they hate him. Uh, right. The environmental movement getting control of power is extraordinarily bullish for the price of oil. Right. Um, it might not be bullish for the supply of it, especially if you're an outsider producing oil and uh, you don't have to worry about the regulatory regimes and being imposed here or in Europe. Um, the the greater the ESG movement rides and the harder uh, the environmentalists push to shut down domestic production in those countries, uh, the better it is for you. Right. And that was the, that was the sort of the basis of the question, certainly, it wasn't yeah. to talk politics, but it was, you know, and, and again, I think a lot of people who've been in industry for any length of time have, have gone, you know, have learned sort of that uh, that, that that trend of what happens. But um, no, it was just an interesting question. Well, let me let me give you a different spin because it's something we've written sure. about for the Russian sanctions and why we knew they would fail from the beginning. Like anybody who's ever spent time in industry knows you make all your money on price, not volume. Yeah. And so our whole sanctions regime is erroneously directed towards trying to constipate his volume which is only going to drive the price much higher than any volume success we could have. And so when you're in a tight commodity market, um, and let's say you're operating 10 plants, and one of your plants blows up, perversely, that's great for you because the price is going to go up way more than 10%. You're going to more than make it up on price. And so if we had been successful in taking half of Putin's oil off of the energy market, the price would have way more than doubled, and he would have generated more revenue. And right. we've argued from the beginning that if we are truly interested in the business of minimizing Putin's revenue to fund the war machine, we should be swamping the world with energy. And it yeah. wouldn't take much because we got the minus $37 a barrel in 2020, right? We see what happens when there's too much oil. Prices yeah. collapse. If we want to collapse Putin's revenue, put too much oil on the market, produce more. Um, and of course, the industry is dumb enough that they would do it. They do it every time. Um, and so, um, you know, that this is just the sort of, complete lack of basic understanding of how commodity markets work. During tight times, you make an enormous amount of money on shortages. And right. during um, times where there's plenty, you lose money because um, people will produce um, you know, and sell their product um, for below their cost uh, just to try to stay in business and gain share, knowing that when the market tightens, they're going to make a ton of money. Um, so you know, politically, if Biden wins re-election, um, that's a very bullish sign for the price of oil. Sure. Speaking of market tightness, do, do you think OPEC is, is I mean, I know they've announced and they're somewhat committing, or OPEC plus committing to, I think it was 1.6 million a day um, of cutbacks. Do, do you think they're on the verge of, of cutting back more? Or Because I, from what I've learned and, and sort of read is, is, is their sweet spot is, is above what it is now. Do you, do you anticipate any more cuts or like where do you see that? Or at least from their seat? So the physical market for oil is much tighter than the paper price of oil would indicate. And, yeah. and ultimately, there has to be a resolution to that question. And I think OPEC Plus, um, they have a price they need, not a price they want. They have built societies and budgets where they have a price that they need. Mm. I think that price is probably closer to 100 than it is to 70. And um, I do think they will have the discipline. I think they've never been more united. I think the abuse of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve last year for, for overtly political purposes on the part of the Biden administration has left a very raw feeling in that group and has unified them. And the failure of the Biden administration to follow through on its uh, what we believe to be uh, a backdoor promise to do so at this price level uh, has uh, whipped up a unity uh, uh, within OPEC Plus that is almost unprecedented. And so, yeah, I do think that they will cut and keep cutting to keep you know, uh, Brent in that 85 to 100 range. Um, they don't want it much higher than that, but they don't certainly don't want it much lower than it is today. Now, again, um, the paper price of oil, not to get too conspiratorial, but you know that when you talk about the paper price of gold and and the physical markets and so on, um, there's a long history uh, of of let's say state actors influencing prices. You know, just this week, the whole controversy around uh, LIBOR price fixing during the Great Financial Crisis is now, you know, 15 years later, 14 years later, uh, making the headlines. 
was obvious to anybody in the markets at the time that this was going on, but that was considered tinfoil and conspiratorial, right? Um, the, 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 the size of the paper market dwarfs the physical market. The um, physical market tightness is not reflected in the current price. We anticipate that that tightness will continue, especially as the ability to draw a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve dissipates. Mm -hmm. um, and OPEC knows the score, knows what they're, they're, the Biden administration is playing poker with their cards facing up. Um, right. And, and they're making, um, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if, if we saw deviations from the discipline. And frankly, there's legitimate questions as to whether they could even keep producing at these levels, uh, even if they wanted to. Um, you know, the, the, it's not just the super majors that have uh, cheated a little bit on their maintenance capital and their exploration capital. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, I think the structural setup for oil is still very bullish. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned SPR and, and then I'm curious and then we'll move on. Um, but right now I think it's sitting, we saw another draw this week last yesterday. I think it was announced 357 million barrels in SPR. Um, but there's talks about buying 3 million barrels in, in the next couple of months, which would obviously be a drop in the bucket, but it's, a, it's an attempt. Uh, do, do you see like how, cause you get a lot of people and including myself, I, you know, it's, I, I know that a, it used to be a lot higher. We were well over 600 million. Now it's uh, again, it's, it's around that 350 mark, but how dangerous is it to have it that low and do you think there will be attempts to fill it back up or is it just, is it going to be a, a political football type thing where it's just, it's, it's used as a sort of a carrot to, to hopefully tell people that, Hey, we're trying. And I mean, it's just, what are, what are your thoughts around SPR? I guess is my question. Yeah. Um, here's the dirty little secret about the SPR and I, we would um, categorize um headline claims that they're going to refill SPR as um, a BS. <laughs> we we uh, wrote a piece in October called Pass the Salt, um, <laughs> where we talked about the salt domes and the, um, the the actual structure of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and what they were meant to be. And, mm. and um, in fact, it can store as much as 727 million barrels of oil. And, um, here's a dirty secret. That. Um, for the better part of the past decade, um, Appropriators of both parties have been pre-selling um, uh, oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as a way to game the Congressional Budget Office's scoring of their bills. So, for example, hmm. um, in 2015, you know, a legislation was passed that uh, you know increased spending and and so on and so forth. Um, and, and as part of that legislation, um, future sales ten years out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve were put into law. And because of the way that the Congressional Budget Office scores that spending, there's no discount factor. So if you can imagine that we're gonna sell that oil in 10 years and it saves us $100 million, then you could increase spending $100 million today and call it budget deficit neutral. And so backloaded by Congressional mandate is probably, I forget the number exactly, but um, it's a lot like another 100 million barrels or 150 million barrels in the next few years, because a lot of this happened in 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, and so um, what we have is these congressionally mandated sales each of the next fiscal years. Right. And so if we're going to put 3 million barrels in, quote unquote, and that's the headline, I'll give you an example, like another, I believe 30 million barrels was mandated to be sold this year and Biden front loaded those into spring to confront yeah the driving season surge in demand. And that's really what we think pissed off the Saudis and caused them to make that production cut. Because not only were they not really serious about refilling it, they accelerated the um, the congressionally mandated sales from yesteryear right. that still exist on the books, you see. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, this is the state of US politics. Um, it, it's just, it is what it is. So. Huh. Yeah, wow. No, it's yeah, crazy. And and again, I think just how, like, how low do you think it could actually get? Like, uh, I don't think there's ever going to be any political support on the left to refill it. You know, just, we said in the in the piece um, when oil was negative, Trump tried to um, help the industry out by refilling the reserves, topping off the reserves, mm -hmm. and it was killed in the Senate. And Chuck Schumer bragged about killing it uh, in the Senate. Um, you know, literally. 
Um, so if oil being negative um, couldn't garner enough political support no to kidding. top off the SPR, what do you think they're going to do at $70 or $80 a barrel? Forget about it. The odds of them ever refilling the SPR are indistinguishable from zero in our view. Um, and so all this happy talk about 3 million barrels is is just that. It's nonsense. Right. So, I mean... <laughs> Does, does it not put us at a pretty high degree of risk for our energy security if in perhaps when we need it for what it was actually intended for? Sure. Of course. It's obscene. It's stupid. It's it, There's no justifying it. The people who are, are cheering the emptying of the strategic petroleum reserves are naive enough to think we won't ever need oil in five years. Like right. It's the same level of thinking. It's like probably just, the same. Or sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it's probably the same people that are mad at oil and gas companies when gasoline was at five dollars a gallon. Yeah, look, exactly. And this is what caused Biden to panic. So I'll just I pulled up the piece while we were talking. So I'll give you one example: the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act of 2015 calls for SPR sales totaling 66 million barrels between U.S. fiscal years 2023 and 2025. You know, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 calls for 7 million barrels over 2026, 2027. The Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 calls for the sale of 100 million barrels between 2022 and 2027. All these laws are still on the books and those sales will happen. So that's Ooh. over and above what Biden's already done. Yeah. Right? And nobody talks about this. Um, now, it's clear Congress could override those laws but then they would be scored pretty terribly on the Congressional Budget Office because they would be new expenditures at today's prices, right? Mm. And are you, you, in what world are the Democrats in the Senate going to agree to give a, quote, handout for the oil and gas industry? They're not. <laughs> no. They're I mean, busy I mean, thinking they can electrify the military. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, it's crazy. I made the joke about we should, because, you know, there's a lot of industries out there that have received bailouts. And as we were just hemorrhaging money and oil companies were losing money. I was saying like the government should bail out oil companies right now. Like that seems to be a great, you know, solution to all this comically, obviously. And, and you, you, it just, it's, and I say all that to say it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that that's the lack of education and sort of the naiveness that, that, that we base a lot of our decisions on. And that's part of the reason why I've started this podcast was to hopefully, uh, change the minds of even one person that can hopefully change the minds of generations to come. But it, it is, it's hard to grasp uh, the, just the lack of common sense, even uh, that, that we run on. The last thing I want to ask, um, you know, are you okay on time? It's not a big question, but I want to no, no, make go sure. Ahead. sure. Okay. okay. We, we did touch on grid before we started recording. Um, and it sounds like that's something that's sort of on the, on the, on the grill for you guys that you're, you're talking about and, 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 and writing about um, the state of the grid, where are we at? Are, are we going to continue to build a pump uh, uh, to, to fill up our electric cars? Uh, what's the sort of the current scape of the grid? I think our rating on it has been like D and maybe less than that uh, as of late. So like, wh where are we, where do we stand there? And, and are we, is there plans to improve on that anytime soon? Yeah. Um, we'll leave, your listeners with the following uh, two-word phrase, which is going to be on the tip of everybody's lips here uh, in the months <laughs> ahead, which is um, distribution transformers. Okay. Uh, there's a, a, a chronic shortage of them. The mandated uh, implementation of heat pumps and electric vehicle chargers is causing neighborhood size transformers to uh, have radically reduced lifetimes. The, the lead time to get one has gone from four weeks to 40 weeks to over a year. The price has gone vertical. A lot of the key mm -hmm. components of it are made in China. Um, we've created uh, a grid that is on the brink of true catastrophe, in our view. Um, and um, you know, uncoordinated installation of two to five kilowatt, um, you know, heat pumps and high-speed chargers and home chargers is going to um, overload uh, an older generation of, of distribution transformers that were never meant for such loads. But mm -hmm. worse still despite being uh, warned in a very alarming letter um, by the sort of um, association of, uh, uh, of of grid providers, I forget their name, um, they wrote a, a pretty sobering letter to the Department of Energy in November. And in December, what did Jennifer Granholm do? She announced a new sweeping policy mandating the improved efficiency of distribution transformers uh, to offset 
some uh, fantasy carbon emissions decades into the future, um, which industry has warned will only exacerbate this uh, chronic shortage. So for example, the industry warns that um, if we have a hurricane on the Gulf Coast or we have a major snowstorm in the Northeast and it knocks out an enormous amount of power, um, an ice storm, um, the, the timeline to restore that power is going to be stretched and very challenging because we have this chronic shortage uh, we also have a shortage of large distributors, uh, distributors, um, trans sorry, um, large um, transformers. But the, the the smaller ones, the neighborhood scale ones, are going to lead to pockets of blackouts that last much longer than people are are accustomed to. And we think this is going to come to a head uh, very quickly. Just to leave you with one last funny anecdote that we share with our pro tier subscribers this morning. Okay. You know, the, all all this talk about heat pumps in Germany, right? I talk about the law of unintended consequences. The vast majority of German homes don't have air conditioning units. What is a heat pump? A heat pump is both a furnace and an AC unit. Right. Millions, millions of German homes will now have AC for the first time. What do you think is going to happen in the summer? Some, some models indicate that the incremental use of air conditioning by German households will more than offset any carbon emissions uh, theoretically saved by using uh, heat pumps in place of, of natural gas-powered furnaces. You couldn't make it up if you tried. Oh, wow. uh, this is this is what's coming. This is the type of absurdity that we have that we have to deal with. Well, everyone put their popcorn in the microwave. It's going to get good. Uh, <laughs> Doomberg, this has been an absolute great conversation. We've touched on a lot of different things. Last but not least, we've got the long weekend coming up. What is Doomberg's ideal Friday night look like? Like what? I mean, you mentioned pool. You've got kids. I didn't You're obviously a pool shark or what it sounds like. But what what is the ideal Friday night look like for someone like yourself? The ideal Friday night um, is I've got most of a piece done and I do all of my writing between 4 and 6 a.m. And I intend to get a piece oh. to my editor at 6 a.m. on Saturday. And on Friday night, I have the cut to paid written and I have everything beyond the paywall lined out and the quotes from other sources embedded in the piece and the figures done. And all I have to do is wake up at 4 a.m. and write four or five paragraphs that stitch everything together. And I know that I have the next great piece done. And so um, I can't write at night. I can have a glass of wine at night, but I can do all of the sort of legwork that gets a piece ready. And then when I wake up at four and the mind is clear and my cat is sitting on my keyboard and I'm drinking my first cup of coffee yeah. and, I, and I bang out the, the four or five stitching paragraphs that turn an idea into a piece that I could proudly hand over to our editor. That's my ideal Friday. It's also my ideal Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, because this is what I was meant to do and I intend to keep doing it. You know what, that that's, I love that answer. And you, you clearly, as people always say, are living the dream and I commend you for it. Appreciate all the hard work and the information and the content you put out. Um, you know, I believe it's truly making a difference and influencing hopefully us and then the next generation to come. And so Doomberg, really appreciate it. I'll put all the links in the show notes uh, for your Twitter, um, as well as your Substack. any other links that you'd like to share with me, I'll certainly do so. And for the listeners, always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.